Death on the Nile, a Why Done It. Welcome to Film Bites, where we review both current and past movies. I am your host, Robin Priest, your personal private critic. I rate films as marvellous, spiffing, tolerable, or execrable. Today, I'm discussing the new Kenneth Branagh film of Agatha Christie's novel, Death on the Nile. I'm styling this as a Why Done It? since we already have a spiffing movie version of this story that was made in 1978. The first mystery is therefore why this new version was made at all. I'm afraid it gets only a barely tolerable rating here. It is lacking in a critical element for a murder mystery movie. What is it now? Ah yes, suspense. The only similarity with the 1978 film is a star-studded cast, although obviously with different stars. It is somewhat surprising that R. Ken tried his hand again at Poirot after his 2017 outing in his much-criticised version of Murder on the Orient Express. I fear he has repeated some of the mistakes made in the earlier film. This should not, however, be seen as anything other than a minor blip in Branagh's career. He has, after all, attained the godlike status of national treasure. Both as an actor and as a director, there is plenty of marvellous Branagh output. It's just that his death on the Nile is not. The protagonist of the story is Belgian detective Hercule Poirot, beloved of those who play the Name Five Famous Belgians quiz game. Tintin is another one that features, along with cyclist Eddie Merckx. Answers on a postcard, please, for the other two. Anyhow, Poirot first appears in the 1920 novel The Mysterious Affair at Stiles, where the character Hastings describes him as follows. He was hardly more than five feet four inches, but carried himself with great dignity. His head was exactly the shape of an egg, and he always perched it a little on one side. The neatness of his attire was almost incredible, I believe a speck of dust would have caused him more pain than a bullet wound. Now, it is obviously not necessary for an actor to be identical to the character they are playing, but any similarity between Branagh and Poirot, as just described, seems to be purely accidental. Like most Agatha Christie characters, Poirot is not deeply drawn in the books. From his debut in the 1920 novel, through to his final appearance in Curtain, published in 1975, the Belgian detective has starred in 33 novels, 59 short stories, and one full-length play. Yet we do not really truly come to know him. His distinguishing feature is, of course, his immaculately groomed moustache. Probably the best part of Branagh's film is the opening sequence, where the backstory to the moustache is shown in glorious monochrome. Though it appears nowhere in Christie's works, here in the film Poirot is shown to have been part of a First World War task force formed to take out a vital bridge. The so-called military strategists had come up with a classic over-the-top boys approach in a typical lions-led-by-donkeys moment. The composed, logical Poirot, though, worked out how to use mustard gas in conjunction with the weather and the terrain. His new plan worked, with minimal loss of life in the raid itself. Unfortunately, after the bridge was taken, 
the donkey captain set off an explosive tripwire. Poirot was brutally scarred, and he didn't think his beloved Catherine, who is in fact in the books, could still love his disfigured face. But in fact she could. The main damage was between his nose and upper lip, as well as the part of his right cheek. The solution? To grow a magnificent moustache. Catherine, by the way, later tragically died in a train crash on the way to seeing him. This inspired him to become a detective because he needed the distraction, and does explain the slightly melancholic undertones in his character. Poirot's other trademarks are his patent leather shoes and the concealment of his grey hairs with a potion called Revive It. He is also congenitally unhappy with disorder, and once said that he finds it really insupportable that every hen lays an egg of a different size. What symmetry can there be on the breakfast table? He is also known to have refused to eat an irregularly shaped loaf of bread. Poirot did, however, have confidence in his own abilities. As he said in The Mystery of the Blue Train, My name is Hercule Poirot, and I am probably the greatest detective in the world. Of the dozens of celluloid takes on Poirot, the two for me that truly endure are Peter Ustinov and David Suchet. Ustinov appeared as the detective half a dozen times, beginning coincidentally with the 1978 version of Death on the Nile. His Poirot is playful, boyish, whimsical, finding a latent amusement in even the most diabolical of circumstances. Ustinov is instantly likable, which tends to mask Poirot's brilliance and perspicacity. This does, though, make the sudden penetrating deductions all the more surprising. The definitive Poirot must be David Suchet, who played him on television for nearly 25 years, appearing in 70 episodes, ultimately covering all of Christie's Poirot oeuvre. Suchet's rendition was extremely faithful to Agatha's account. He is prim, charming, and ultra-fastidious. He is vain but considerate, sharp but deferential, faultless about manners and etiquette, but, when it is time to issue a verdict, thoroughly ruthless. R. Ken's take on Poirot, I'm afraid, is eminently forgettable in comparison, a performance that is truly overwhelmed by the oversized and intricate moustache that he sports, and in an odd way by the pains that have clearly been taken to recreate the late 1930s in this film. The costumes are, perhaps, too perfect. So, to the film's plot. It is 1937. Poirot enters a jazz club where a singer named Salome is performing. He sees Jackie de Belfort introduce her fiancé Simon Doyle to her childhood friend, the heiress Lynette Ridgway, and to find him employment. This not only lands Simon with a job, but also with a wife, as the sparks fly between he and Lynette. Six weeks later, the Belgian sleuth is vacationing aboard a glamorous river steamer on the Nile, having encountered his friend Book and his mother Euphemia. It turns out that Book is friends with Simon and Lynette, and introduces them to Poirot. They are on honeymoon, and are joined by a classical whodunit ensemble of guests. Lynette's longtime maid Louise, Salome, Salome's niece and manager, and Lynette's old classmate, Rosalie, 
Lynette's communist-leaning godmother, Marie Van Schuyler, Van Schuyler's nurse, Mrs. Bowers, Lynette's cousin, Andrew, who is in charge of Lynette's will, and Dr. Linus Windlesham, who has been engaged to Lynette before she left him for Simon. So everyone is connected to someone, and everybody has something to hide. No one, though, seems to question why such an entourage would accompany the honeymooners. But then we are in a suspension of disbelief mode. It transpires that the jilted Jackie has become Simon's stalker, and also turns up on the boat. I will now concertina the plot, otherwise it will be bewildering for the listener. Jackie, having thoughtfully brought a gun on holiday, shoots Simon in the leg. Lynette is found shot in the head, and her valuable jewel necklace stolen. Poirot is now in his element. The necklace shows up in Euphemia's luggage. This does not stop the murders, however. Louise the maid is found dead in the water wheel, with her throat slit. I will go no further with the plot, as it would in any event act as a spoiler. I hope I have said enough, so that you can see that this is a story of unbridled passion and incapacitating jealousy, so often Christy themes. There are enough twists and turns to leave you guessing, and as always, the denouement is a surprise. The crying shame about this movie is that it fails to take off, despite a marvellous plot and a fabulous cast that includes the glamorous Gal Gadot, a.k.a. Wonder Woman, Army Hammer, in what may be one of his last film performances, given his apparent real-life fondness for um, cannibalism, Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders, improbably affecting American accents, Annette Benning, improbably affecting an English accent, Sophie Oconedo, Russell Brand, and Tom Bateman. Other than the substantial waste of an ex excellent cast, the most off-putting aspect of the film is the abundantly extravagant use of CGI. Egypt would have been the obvious place to shoot this film, or perhaps Morocco at a stretch. But the production team decided to recreate Egypt at the Long Cross Studios in Surrey, two miles southwest of the M3-M25 junction. While I am a fan of supporting the UK film industry, this movie was actually shot pre-COVID, and hence there was no real need to forego the opportunity for at least a little bit of on-location filming. I do apologise for mentioning this, as you will be even more sensitised to the lashings of CGI. This said, it is a remarkable technical achievement, as there are no actual pyramids in Surrey, and the weather tends to be much less clement than in Egypt. The film is very unevenly paced. The languorous build-up to the multiple murders takes up too much of the movie's running time, which means that the most interesting part, Poirot's solving of the many-stranded case, feels rather rushed, and thus wholly inconsistent with the great detective's methodology, which is much more to do with psychology and the observation of human behaviour than, for example, collecting blood samples. The bottom line is that you should watch the 1978 version of the film. To whet your appetite, let me tell you that the cast included Peter Ustinov, Jane Birkin, David Niven, Maggie Smith, Angela Lansbury, Betty Davis, I could go on, but you get the picture. Either see that version of the film, or better yet, 
read the book on your next holiday. Agatha is always a cracking read.